morning. Wonderful to see you all today. Oh, I have, I have three small children and I'm never here for all the songs, so this is so much fun. <laughs> We're never here on time. Um, so my name is Jackie Tistammer. Um, I'm a member here of Sebastopol Christian Church. My husband grew up here um, among all of you. Um, I'm also a missionary supported by the church, and I'm a missionary to the college campus. <laughs> um, so not, not overseas, but um, kind of right next door, but still in a whole different universe. Um, so my husband and I have worked with um, college students through university for over 12 years. I keep losing a year because of 2020. It's like it didn't count, but I think it's more than 12 now. Um, and in my role currently, I disciple students. I help to coordinate the university chapter at University of San Francisco. And I also create resources to equip students and staff to engage the Bible well. And so that's my, um, my place of passion and of calling. And I just love to see people fall in love with Jesus through the Bible, um, to learn to see and love God differently and more deeply through his word. Um, I also love to teach people to do the hard work of applying scripture instead of just learning what it means. Um, so that's something I take joy in, because I believe we're formed by scripture when we bring our genuine questions to the text, not the ones we think we should be asking, but the real ones. So like my favorite thing is to study the Bible with people who are not followers of Jesus, because they ask all the real questions. <laughs> um, but as believers too, we can bring our real questions to the text um, and find there um, an opportunity to try something different in our life and see how the scriptures impact our life. And then I really believe that God actually changes our questions as we follow him. And we start to ask questions that bring us closer and closer to realizing the kingdom of God in our life. Um, and so that's what I love about God's word, about the Bible, and about my job. <laughs> um, but this week, I have the privilege of wrapping up our um, journey through First Peter. Um, and I'm excited for these verses because we have kind of the little, you know, ending tidbits here, like all of the letters have in the New Testament. We're like, oh, here's the five things I wanted to talk to you about, but I'm not going to elaborate on. Um, and then here's the people who were with me when I wrote the letter. So it's actually kind of fun to get to dig a little deeper into, um, into this chunk of scripture here. Um, so I'm going to read our text for today, um, and then we'll pray together. So we begin in chapter 5 of 1 Peter in verse 7. He says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And then he wraps up a little. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly encouraging you, testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Um, let me pray for us. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you be, would be among us today, um, helping us to understand these words, to understand better um, our Savior and our community and the hope that we have in you. In your name we pray. Amen. So today I'm starting just with a quick note here at the end um, of the text because I love that Peter gives us a summary of what he was hoping to accomplish through writing this letter. Um, His goal, if you can go to the next slide, I think it has it underlined. Um, His goal um, is encouragement. No, maybe not. That's right. And testimony that's going to help the church stand fast in the grace of God. So he says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So if Peter gets his way, this letter will um, enable and strengthen the churches that he's writing to so that they can stand fast in the grace of God. Um, a worthy goal. So we can think about whether that goal has like, been accomplished more in our life as we've been um, going through this letter together. Um, Peter has addressed several different themes in this letter that are related to this idea of standing fast in the grace of God. Um, He's talked about suffering well for Jesus. He's talked about submitting to one another in various relationships and families and in the church. He's talked about obedience to God and the leaving behind of our old ways in order to, to follow Jesus. So all of these things are things that help us to stand fast in the grace of God. Um, So if we're going to jump back to the beginning of our passage today where Peter gives us a few closing instructions. And it's so easy in the letters to kind of read the closing instructions and say, oh yeah, that's true, and then kind of like just move through them. Um, But today we're going to stop and pause on each of these instructions and consider the how. Um, So we we have this instruction. Some of us have heard it before if you've been around church. Um, but we're going to think together about the how. So the first instruction is in verse 7. And Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Um, and I think that's on the next slide. So there's a phrase, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There's some great hymns written <laughs> from this phrase, and it's very encouraging. But I also would argue that it's easy to say and maybe hard to do, at least for me. <laughs> um, that I can say, yes, I'm, I'm putting my anxiety on God, but then I look at how I'm acting and I think, you know, maybe my anxiety is not as firmly like in God's hand as I want it to be. <laughs> um, and I appreciate that Peter here assumes that we have anxieties and cares and worries that accompany us in our faith journey. He assumes that the church is made of human beings, And I appreciate that, because having experienced church for many years, I would agree. (laughs) The church is made of human beings. We have anxieties, and we have cares, and we have worries that we need to um, figure out what to do with. So Peter has covered, as I said, several topics in this letter that are potential sources of anxiety. Okay, so leaving behind our old lives. It's hard to go from something we're familiar with to something new. That can be a cause of anxiety. Um, Suffering for our faith, obviously a cause of anxiety. Like nobody really just wants to suffer, you know, for fun, right? Like (laughs) that's a hard call. Um, Church leadership, that could be a source of anxiety for some of us, depending on our experiences. But in all these areas, I think we as people are prone to try and just figure it out on our own. Um, We can think through this problem. We can work it out. We can make a plan. And the truth is that it's God who gives us the motivation we need to change our lives. It's God who gives the strength we need to endure suffering. 
Um, it's God who gives the humility that we need to lead and to be led, right? We cast our anxiety on God, all the anxieties that these different parts of living out our faith bring up, we cast that on God because we know that he cares for us. Um, he cares for each of us. He cares for all of us together as a community. He doesn't just sit up in his throne in heaven assigning out earthly tests to see who's worthy. <laughs> That's not a, a correct picture of God, although sometimes we, we may think that way. Jesus is, is an incarnational God. He came to be among us. Jesus walked that hard road before us. He's walking our hard road with us. He cares deeply for us in our pain and anxiety, um, no matter how long it lasts. So if you have worries, you're not a bad person or a bad Christian. Um, I think sometimes we feel that way, especially if we're around other believers. We feel bad continuing to have anxiety like, or worries, like, oh man, I shouldn't have these anymore. Um, and sometimes when we express our fears to other people, we're met with kind of this barrage of platitudes, right? Like, oh, it's all going to work out. Like, trust in God's timing. When one door closes, another opens. Like, sometimes we're unintentionally unkind to one another, responding to each other's fears with these kind of like just easy answers that, that don't really get to the real problem. But God never meets our anxieties with a platitude, always with love and care. So as we mature in Christ and suffer in the world, um, we, we stop being satisfied with simple answers. You know, when my children have a, have a problem, I do teach them the simple answers because they need something concrete to kind of like ground their little minds in, right? But as they get older and the problems get more complicated, they're going to need more than a simple answer. They're going to need the presence of God, right? We all start yearning for the presence of God in the midst of our difficulties. And I'm a person who struggles with anxiety as I face the realities of life. Um, and this pandemic has brought all my anxieties into very sharp focus. <laughs> Wonderful, thanks for that. Um, giving my worries to God, for me, requires that I bring God back into focus. It's a matter of perspective. What is in focus in my life? So in the midst of all these sufferings and these hardships, Peter reminds us that God cares for us. And our anxieties may demand attention and worry, but if we can refocus our eyes... We can, see it. we can see God in a different way, um, and it provides a different perspective on our concerns. So when I first came on staff with InterVarsity, I felt God was inviting me to receive prayer for what was at the time actually a pretty large amount of anxiety that I experienced in my daily life, um, to the point that like, it kind of ruled my life. Um, I was a functional person, but like, there were things I would do and not do just solely based on, on my anxiety. And so in that time of prayer, God gently called me and said, you know, you can't do what I want, what I'm inviting you to do um, while you drag all of this anxiety along with you. Like, you're going to have to leave this behind <laughs> if you want to do what I'm calling you into. And um, the major image that I remember from that time of prayer was this picture of just my fear, kind of this like nebulous badness, <laughs> which that's basically what anxiety is. Um, and it was getting smaller and smaller and kind of started shrinking. And then it turned into this little mouse and got stepped on by a huge foot. <laughs> it was like, it actually made me chuckle. <laughs> it was kind of this funny little image <laughs> um, in prayer. And, um, and here I was, I just realized, I'm like, here I am giving all this space in my life to my fear. And God didn't say, ooh, bad job. Instead, he said, let me show you your fear from my perspective. <laughs> let me show you your anxiety from my perspective. It's this tiny little ant mouse, <laughs> and I can easily step on it. 
Um, so since then, um, in that prayer time and in the ways God worked that out in my life, I, I haven't, I've rarely allowed anxiety to dictate my life. I'll give myself a little bit of a caveat for like March 2020. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I very rarely allowed anxiety to dictate my life. So just realizing like compared to even just the sole of God's foot, fear is so small. Um, it really has no power that I don't lend to it um, in my life. So some different steps or ideas for how we practically give our anxieties to God. Um, one of them is to bring your worries into the presence of God in prayer. Um, and for me, this was, this was what I was doing in my story, through even like visualizing, handing those things over to God. Um, so I went and met with a, a, a person that I trusted to pray with, and together we just envisioned like you know, the, the cross and being at the cross and kneeling there and, and envisioned like, what does my fear look like? And I'm going to set it down here and I'm going to take my hands off it, <laughs> right? It's going to be at the foot of the cross. It's going to belong to Jesus and be his. And then the next part of that was asking Jesus, what do you want to give me in return? Um, so I'm going to leave this here with you. Like, what do I get <laughs> to replace that in my life, basically? Um, and for me, that was, that was um, he, he actually, in, in that prayer time, I envisioned him handing me a Bible, right? It was my, my gifts, um, my gifts of loving and teaching God's word. Um, and so that, that's something that you can actually do on your own if you have a deep fear or anxiety, um, and, it's not an, and you're not finding it to be enough to just pray for the thing you're worried about, but you need to actually like lay it down um, with Jesus and receive something different in return. Um, another one that, that sounds um, maybe cliche but is actually really important is the regular time in the Bible. <laughs> um, so for me, as a lover of God's word, this has always been an easy discipline for me. I have a much harder time like with prayer, um, so all of us are wired a little differently um, in that sense. But um, but even I have some lapses sometimes where I'll just realize, hey, I've only looked at the Bible like for work for like a month, you know, and I need to really like take some time to be reading it on my own. So somewhere in the middle of 2020, I started reading one chapter of Isaiah each day. And it was a really small commitment, but it allowed me to see God's perspective on everything that was happening in the world. As I read Isaiah, I actually saw like things that were happening in our country and around the world, like in the verses of Isaiah. Um, and for me, that was really powerful. I'm like, wow, God knows this. He knows the world works this way. And here's his response to it written in his word. Um, it was a really powerful time. So I just want to encourage you all that like even, even one chapter of the Bible a day, and you don't have to be a Bible scholar, <laughs> but even just that little bit can really like change our perspective and help us to bring God into focus. Um, and if you're not sure where to start with that or you're out of practice, um, there's actually one of the benefits of technology. There's a lot of great like reading plans on the Bible apps <laughs> on your phone. Um, that can be a place to start. It'll even like pop up a reminder for you every day um, if you're someone who uses your phone a lot. Um, or you can always just go to one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and spend some time walking with Jesus and hearing what he has to say about life and about the world. So coming to the second um, of Peter's instructions here, he continues, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to, to devour. 
So this instruction actually has a great translation in the NRSV. In the first part of the verse, it says, discipline yourselves and keep alert. I loved how simple that was. Discipline yourselves and keep alert. So when he uses the word, or when he says to be of sober mind, he's not just talking about substance, sobriety here, although that totally applies. Um, but he's talking in a broader sense about being people of discipline so that we can be people who are aware of reality, <laughs> of the spiritual reality around us. And so discipline is just so crucial to resisting the devil. Satan deals in half-truths. He's kind of like the Facebook of the spiritual world. <laughs> um, and without discipline, we don't have the discernment to tell when Satan is at work. Okay? So take the graphic image that Peter uses here in this verse of a roaring lion. Now, to me, that's not a very graphic image. And like, I think of the zoo <laughs> right? when I think of a roaring lion. And that's just like not very scary. Um, but when my husband Troy, a number of years ago, traveled with some others from this church to Zimbabwe, he went out one day with some pastors into the bush to experience their ministry in the villages. And at one point, he was telling me this story. They stopped for lunch, and Troy's like sitting there, enjoying his lunch, relaxing. Notice that everyone else's eyes are like darting around. They're like scanning, <laughs> you know, looking while they eat. Like they don't look comfortable. They are not having a relaxed lunch. And he kind of like asked about it. Well, it turns out that like there's lions out there, and they can eat people. <laughs> Right? And so all the people that Troy is with, they know perfectly well, like, if there was a lion, it could eat someone. And Troy's just like, you know, blissfully unaware. So he was comfortable in his unawareness, but he was not safe <laughs> in his unawareness. So that's, I think, more an example of this idea of a, a lion prowling around. We're not talking about uh, the zoo. We're talking about, like, you know, out in the wilderness. And so often we lack this discipline to be spiritually alert. And I think this can kind of happen in waves in our life. We maybe like have that discipline down for a while and something happens um, and it causes us to be less alert. And because our enemy isn't like a person we can look at or an animal that we need to run away from, we can forget he's there. Um, but God is not the only one at work in the world. God will win and prevail, but he's not the only one at work in the world right now. And discipline trains us to love God, not just emotionally love God, but also to love him with all of our heart, mind, our soul, and strength. And from that vantage point, it's much easier to spot the lions. <laughs> so a great picture of being alert is found in Luke 4, and I just studied this passage recently with them. Um, I have a Bible study of faculty and grad students that I meet with at University of San Francisco. And so we, we studied this passage about um, Jesus' temptations in the wilderness right before he begins his ministry. So he's been out there 40 days without eating, and he's hungry, and he's tired, but he is not unaware. <laughs> so when the devil shows up and starts offering different plans that Jesus could do aside, that aren't God's plan, um, he, the, the devil even tries to use scripture to get Jesus to deviate from his purpose. But Jesus sees right through it all. So he's hungry, he's tired, but he's not unaware. He's disciplined. And because of that, he's in close relationship with his father. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's able to cut through Satan's lies effortlessly. He knows exactly what to say to just, like, move on <laughs> with his life. Um, so what does it take to have that kind of discernment? I mean, short of being the son of God. We can't be the son of God. But how can we cultivate that kind of discernment in our own lives? Um, one book that I've been using recently that has been helpful to me is called um, The Common Rule. 
And so this book talks about developing a rule of life or a rhythm of spiritual practices that kind of support our spiritual growth in God. Because um, in the Christian life, we refer often to spiritual disciplines, or I say with my students, spiritual practices. Um, it's kind of like an athlete who's training their body, like we're spiritually training to be strong and alert. But just because they're called spiritual disciplines doesn't mean they have nothing to do with our bodies. So I think some of the best spiritual disciplines are ones that enable us to grow spiritually while involving our body in some way. Um, we're embodied creatures, right? We're going to continue to be embodied even after Jesus returns and restores the world to rightness. I mean, hopefully the bodies will be better. That's what I hear. But that's what, <laughs> that's what we're looking at. So our bodies are actually integral to our spiritual alertness. Um, so at any rate, I've been working with this um, book, The Common Rule. Um, it's written by a missionary turned lawyer. And this book presents a set of spiritual practices um, that are relevant to our lives today. And so they have something, sorry, this turned out kind of small so I can look at, read them for you. They have four daily habits and four weekly habits. Um, so the daily ones are kneeling prayer three times a day, having a meal with others, an hour with your phone off, and scripture before phone. The weekly habits are things like an hour of conversation with a friend, curating your media intake to four hours, which is like actually pretty intense, <laughs> um, pretty hard. Um, fasting from something for 24 hours and taking a Sabbath or a day of rest. So these are just, just eight practices that he's put together and, and found meaningful. So in trying to apply this to my life, I was having a really hard time with the scripture before phone um, and then the kneeling prayer three times a day. Okay, because it was just honestly hard to remember. Like, I got three little kids. <laughs> so the scripture before phone was hard because they'd all be up. I'm getting them ready. And then I'm like, well, I need to look at my phone to, like, see the weather and see if the grandparents have text texted me anything before I drop the kids off. And so inevitably, then I'd go on to other things on my phone, um, for example. So I realized the issue had to do with the order of my day. And so I took a cue from one of Jim's sermons, and I started getting up before my kids, which was honestly, like, not a part of adulthood I've been looking forward to. I've been putting it off a long time. <laughs> like, I want to sleep in as long as possible. <laughs> um, but I started getting up at 6, since our kids are usually up by 6.30, and I would get my body started well by drinking a whole glass of water. It was, like, super helpful. I would kneel and pray for whatever was strongly on my heart, not out of, like, a big, long list, but just whatever God brought up to me. And then I would read one chapter of the Bible. Um, and in all honesty, I'm kind of out of practice right now because our family was sick, and I was sick um, last week, and I was like, I need the sleep, <laughs> and so I was sleeping in. But I could feel the difference between when I was choosing that discipline and when I was sleeping in, even if my body did need that sleep. So I'm, I'm like back on the wagon as <laughs> of so this morning for the 6 a.m. wake up, <laughs> as much as it's hard, um, because I noticed a difference between having that discipline in my life and not. And so I think this idea of a rule of life um, or a rhythm of spiritual disciplines is one of the most helpful ways to, to develop overall discipline in our life. So we're not just coming to church on Sunday, which is a good discipline um, and is part of a broader rule of life. Um, but there's more that we can be doing throughout the week to continue connecting with God. Um, so if you're curious about more about that concept um, of a rule of life, this book is an awesome example. Um, and I would also be happy to share more of my experience um, if you have any questions. But moving onward in what Peter is sharing with us today, um, his last instruction um, is to resist him, the devil. Um, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. 
and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So it isn't enough just to trust God with our worries or to recognize when the devil's prowling around. We need to be able to act, to resist. So what strikes me in this passage is how communal Peter's concept of resistance is. Um, Resisting the devil successfully is partly about the company that you keep. So Peter first draws attention to the communal suffering of the church. And I think he does this not to minimize the suffering that might be experienced by his readers, but really to encourage them that their suffering is normal and that we're all in this together. You're not suffering alone. Um, And I think that that, yeah, that's just important. Jim gave a great sermon on suffering earlier in the series that like I really wanted to give the sermon again as I was reading this thing on suffering, but I encourage you to just go back and and check that out if you missed it. Um, It's online. Um, but yeah, that suffering is normal and it's, it's a sign of doing things right, um, honestly, with God. Um, that we suffer because how, what we believe and how we live our lives is radically different um, from the world. So Peter then goes on to give the credit where the credit is really due. In the end, it's our gracious God who restores us in the midst of anything that's happening in our life. He makes us strong and firm and steadfast to be able to resist the devil. So from start to finish, the instructions that Peter is giving in this passage really depend on God. And so another thing as I looked at this section was just like, we got to do the math, right? Got to do the math. Like there's this eternal glory in Christ compared to these, this little while of sufferings, right? And so whether the little while is a year or half a lifetime, right? Little while can feel long to us sometimes, but regardless of how long the little while of suffering is, we are not without hope. We have hope. As he opened his letter, Peter was praising God for giving us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There are many things to put hope in in the world, but only one, only Jesus, delivers living hope. Hope that delivers um, what it promises. So, This kind of hope is something we want to cultivate to tend in our lives. We want to help that grow. We need God to grow that hope in us. And all of us are tempted in different ways to lose hope or to put our hope in things like hard work or money or our family connections. But in community together as believers and through the power of God, we can cultivate hope in our daily lives, Um, hope that is living and dependent on Jesus. And so I think part of this is choosing to connect with other believers in meaningful ways. Um, We have a lot of structures that we're used to participating in, and sometimes we're connecting meaningfully with people there, and sometimes we're not. Like, for example, coming to church on Sunday. Everyone here can connect meaningfully with people, or anyone here can walk out the door without saying anything to anyone, right? And not, not a word of judgment so much as a word of invitation. Like, there's more. Um, in community when we connect well with one another. And actually, I think for the most part, I'm preaching to the choir on this one (laughs) because I know many of you and how you have deep friendships in this church and deep relationships that have carried you through many hard times. Um, So I just want to affirm that as well. Um, One thing, if you feel like you don't have those kind of relationships right now with other believers, um, you could start just by staying after service to talk with people, ask them about their faith journey, or to pray. 
You could invite someone to grab coffee, or if you're a parent of young kids, you could go out and have a play date with another family in the park. Um, you could also join a life group and see who you meet. So when we lived in Reno, I, we joined, Troy and I joined this life group at our church. It was, it was like a young adult, you know, group, and that was great. Um, so we kind of had that in common. But other than that, it was full of people that I would like never have chosen to get close to on purpose. Like there was nothing wrong with them. We just really had nothing in common. <laughs> um, and so I also joined this women's leadership team. And on that team, I was the youngest member by I think a couple of decades, like at least a couple of decades. So that doesn't seem like a great recipe for community, right? Like, okay, I'm gonna go to this group where I don't have that much in common with the people. And then I'm gonna join this team where everyone is like a significantly different age than me. <laughs> um, but these two groups actually became a place of really deep support for me and for Troy. And that was just the work of the Holy Spirit, knitting us together into a community. We didn't have to have things in common. We didn't have to be the same age. We didn't have to be the same stage of life um, because God and his spirit were united us in a deeper way. So when I lacked hope, these people loaned their hope to me <laughs> to get me through. When I wanted to give up on our ministry at University of Nevada, Reno, they would tell me stories of God's faithfulness so that I could keep going. Even after I moved away, they sent me a prayer quilt during a time of grief in my life so that I would know that I wasn't alone. We built relationships that lasted despite all of the barriers. So for you, if you're sitting here today and thinking, I don't really have anyone at this church who is a supportive spiritual friend to me, um, give, give something a shot, even if it looks unlikely. <laughs> you never know what the Spirit of God will do as he knits us together. So to, to wrap up our passage today, um, Peter concludes in um, what we looked at in the very beginning, and he mentions the help of Silas, um, so how Silas helped him in writing the letter. He mentions um, the church in Babylon. He mentions his son, Mark. Um, I assume spiritual son <laughs> in that sense, Mark. Um, so like other letters in the New Testament, not even this letter is a work of individual, is an individual work. It's all communal. Um, Paul, or Peter is writing with the help of somebody else. He's writing in the presence of other believers in another church. And they are all together offering their encouragement and their testimony to the communities that they're writing to. Um, so this, this, this idea of communal um, encouragement and hope together is lived out even in how Peter writes this letter. So from one community to another, Peter relays this most important message to stand fast in the true grace of God. So let's pray um, today. Lord Jesus, um, we thank you for, um, we thank you that this letter is here for us even today, um, that the community of believers who wrote it um, have given us this gift to encourage us forward in our faith. And we pray that um, you would continue to help this church body be a family together, um, the family of God, um, and that together we would support and encourage and bring hope into each other's lives, um, and that you would be at work in us and through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.